The application of CAR T-cell therapy in solid tumors has been fraught with historical obstacles. In simplest terms, it's been hard to encourage CAR T-cells to migrate into tumors, and equally, if not more difficult, to keep them alive long enough to go about their work killing tumor cells. Among the challenges, CAR T-cells face a gauntlet of immunosuppressive cells surrounding most tumors, intent on taking them out before the work begins. It's a tall order, but Dr. Amit Kumar is undaunted. Dr. Kumar is CEO at Anixa Biosciences, a clinical stage biopharma company focused on treating and preventing breast and ovarian cancers by way of its development of cancer vaccines and novel CAR T cell therapies. I'm Matt Pillar. This is the Business of Biotech, and Dr. Kumar is here with me today to share his optimism. Dr. Kumar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt, for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm glad you could come along for the ride and join us for the conversation. I've got a whole bunch of questions for you about what the, what you're doing there, the work you're doing at Anixa, but I want to begin by talking a little bit about you and, and what drives you and where you came from. So you're, uh, I'm curious about your career intentions, coming out of Caltech with a PhD in chemical physics, doing your postdoc work in chemistry at Harvard. Um, what were your uh, kind of intentions with that? It's an interesting background to, 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 to wind up in, in, a, in a cell therapy leadership position. Well, uh, you know, I finished my PhD. I did my PhD at both Stanford and Caltech. And uh, my intent was initially to be, be, uh, become a professor. So I went to Harvard. I was uh, uh, lucky enough to get a position there for my fellowship. Um, um, unfortunately, I, I uh, didn't like the cold in Boston. So I decided mm. to come back to the Bay Area. I invented a technology at Harvard, which is now known as soft lithography, uh, which is something that's uh, become very broadly used. I think at almost every university uh, every research university has someone that's doing soft lithography research now, um, and that technology was uh, uh, was useful for a particular application uh, for which a startup company in the Bay Area was recruiting me, and so I chose to go down that path. That startup company was in the biotech sector, and since that time, uh, I've been working in biotech as a scientist, an executive, investor, uh, uh, et cetera, for, uh, for the last uh, 25 years or so. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. And, you, and, and so that, that, uh, biotech journey has kind of led you into a, a number of different industries, different industries. Um, you know, I noticed that, uh, among the companies that you founded or chaired over the course of your, your career, um, are, uh, an ener- company in the energy sector. So you you applied some biotech chops to uh, bio, bio chops to the the a company in the ener- energy sector. What was the inspiration behind that? Moving yeah, on. I've actually been involved in a number of companies in the energy sector. Um, my PhD at Caltech was focused on uh, solar cells, photovoltaics. So very much uh, energy focused uh, and not biotech actually. Um, and so during my career in biotech, 
I've uh, been involved with a number of energy companies, one of which is a company called Ascent Solar, uh, which is located in uh, Colorado. Uh, and the company I think you're referring to is, is a company called Geofossil Fuels, which was focused on uh, hydrocarbon fuel, hydrocarbon energy. Um, that company was an interesting uh, company with interesting technology. We were trying to develop uh, bacteria, so genetically engineered bacteria that would go into oil wells and release a lot of the very thick and viscous oil that never gets out. A lot of people don't know this, but in a typical oil well, uh, only about 10, anywhere from 10% to maybe at the max about a third of the uh, oil ever gets uh, uh, extracted. The remaining material is very viscous, often tar-like, is but, but very valuable if it could be removed. Um, and so rather the idea here was that rather than uh, drill more holes, let's just go to existing oil wells and try and uh, remove that uh, existing carbon uh, by um, by using genetically engineered bacteria that would go into those oil wells, live in these very extreme conditions, and uh, to, for lack of a better word, liquefy the tar-like oil. And so we had we had gener genetically engineered a number of uh, very useful uh, microorganisms to do that. Um, uh, but the dynamics of the oil industry are, are very complex, and uh, uh, we ended up, uh, I ended up moving forward and uh, going back into more traditional biotech, which is what I'm doing here at Nixon. Yeah, in the, in the biopharma. You know, it's, it's interesting, like that, that, that kind of that path, both, both those fields just have um, an incredible impact, incredible imp potential impact on uh, on, on society. Um, are you, are you, are you partial then to the, to the biopharma aspect uh, of, of biotech versus uh, perhaps some of the work you've done in the energy space? I think so. I mean, the, the, they're both very uh, important fields. Um, the the uh, biopharma field uh, hits home a little bit because all of us have had to deal with illness and cancer uh, within our families and friends. And as you know, uh, when someone within your family uh, is diagnosed with uh, you know, difficult disease like illness, like cancer, uh, it affects not only that individual, but pretty much everyone in that orbit, in that person's orbit. Uh, it affects, uh, you know, the, the person's uh, ability to work. It affects society in ways that uh, we don't always measure. Um, and it's it's a very emotional. It's uh, uh, something that uh, often results in an outcome that is not very pleasant. Um, and so I think I think uh, having an impact in that area is uh, uh, is something that uh, is, is very important to me. Yeah. Is there, um, what, what, what's the, I guess, um, reasoning behind the indications that you're targeting, um, from the outset. So you're developing cancer vaccines and, and CAR T therapies, uh, initially focused on breast and ovarian cancers. Why, why lead with those indications? 
Well, this, you know, those are two two very big indications with big unmet needs. Breast cancer is uh, the most common malignancy in women, uh, and I believe it's uh, it's number two in terms of the most common cancer overall uh, uh, in most uh, uh, you know most uh, societies. Um, and uh, ovarian cancer is one of those uh, types of diseases that, uh, for which we do not have a lot of options. Uh, many, many women um, who you know, get ovarian cancer uh, actually respond initially to the platinum drugs that are used, but very quickly go into uh, uh, resistance and then uh, often they pass away. Um, and so highly, highly unmet need, and it's something that uh, everyone knows about. Um, but, but the ma- main reason we chose indications like that is because we've, we've found situations where technology that's been developed, that's been um, the subject of research for over a decade, uh, we felt was ready for prime time, ready for commercialization, ready for clinical trials, and uh, and ready to, to make a difference. Um, in, in terms of the vaccines, the ovarian cancer and the breast cancer vaccine, uh, I think every physician will tell you that if you can prevent a disease, that's much better than waiting until the disease uh, occurs and then try to treat that disease. And so we found a situation where uh, some very innovative researchers at the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the top hospital systems in the world, had uh, developed these approaches to try and vaccinate women against uh, you know, contracting ovarian cancer and contracting breast cancer. And so we're very excited to be working with uh, our partners there to uh, take these technologies into clinical testing and then we hope eventually into commercialization. Yeah. Um, and, and you recently launched the phase one trial of that breast cancer vaccine. Is that correct? That's correct. The phase one trial has begun and we've started dosing the first handful of uh, you know, patients, uh, women who are uh, have, uh, decided to participate in our trial. And we're at the dose escalation stage right now. So what that means is we start out with a very low dose to evaluate safety, and we increase the dose gradually in successive participants in the trial uh, until we get to a point where we feel we have the right dose uh, that's appropriate for uh, uh, conducting the trial. Okay. Uh, now, a, a, a lot of our listeners are going to know, you know, when you, when you mention uh, cancer vaccine, breast cancer vaccine, uh, they're going to get it. Uh, some of our our listeners might not because like right right now, you know, vaccines are in the news or in our kitchen table uh, conversations for the past two years. But we're talking about, you know, uh, more, more traditional and non-traditional, but a, a more traditional approach to uh, vaccinating against the virus. This is different. So explain for us, if you will, what you know, what, what a cancer vaccine, I guess, means the, theoretically, fundamentally, and then maybe talk specifically about your candidate. Yeah, the area of cancer vaccine, the field of cancer vaccines is a little different than uh, the traditional field of vaccines against infectious agents like uh, you know, SARS coronavirus or smallpox or polio. Uh, the area of, you know, the field of cancer vaccines has been focused primarily on what are 
what is known as a therapeutic vaccine. That's a situation where a cancer has been diagnosed in a patient and uh, you try and induce a immune response against that cancer to try and treat that cancer. The challenge, and, and, and we've had about three or four decades of work in that area and nothing has worked. Nothing has been successful. Mm-hmm. And the main reason we believe is because once a tumor has taken, once a tumor has gained critical mass, that tumor is you know, comprised of trillions of cells. It's got a very immunosuppressive environment, you know, known as the tumor microenvironment. And it's very hard for the immune system to battle that tumor. However, we believe that a more traditional vaccine, prophylactic or preventative vaccine has some advantages. One of the advantages is that as cancer forms, it starts out as one aberrant cell, then it becomes two, and then four, eight, et cetera, et cetera, um, eventually becoming a you know, trillion cell mass. However, if we can destroy those cells at the two, four, eight cell stage, then we, that those cells will never be able to gain enough critical mass to become a tumor. Um, and we believe that the immune system if you can train it properly, is able to destroy those handfuls of cells much easier than after you've got trillions of cells. So our prophylactic vaccine is designed to target a specific protein that shows up on cancer cells. And we treat, we train the immune system before a woman, in the case of breast cancer, before a woman uh, has uh, those cells. And when those cells arise in some women at a later stage in life, uh, we hope the immune system will destroy those cells. The animal studies demonstrated exceptional uh, ability to uh, prevent uh, breast cancer. And we hope to prove that in human studies, which is what the, the subject of the clinical trials. Okay. Interesting. You know, a follow-up question to that just out of curiosity, and it may be way too early to, to, to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, you know, one of the, um, uh, again, in, in the daily and common conversations taking place around vaccine efficacy today in terms of, uh, you know, uh, vaccines against um, infectious agents, the word durability comes up a lot, <laughs> especially of yeah. late around the Omicron variant. Um the word durability comes up a lot and, and, and timing, right? Timing is a, a very, very big consideration. So when you think about down the road, and again, it may be too early to, to respond to the question accurately, but when you think about down the road, the uh, effective timing of, of vaccination uh, of a young woman, perhaps, and the durability of that protection, do you have any, any anticipation at all as to w- what we might expect there? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And uh, typically, it's very difficult to answer that question until you've actually monitored uh, the people in the trial for some period of time. Uh, We expect that uh, the the durability of our vaccine is uh, going to last a whole lifetime. But we won't know that until we actually do the uh, studies and then follow the women for a period of time post uh, vaccination. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything uh, anything unique or interesting about the the clinical trial itself that that you'd like to? I mean, beyond beyond the obvious, it, it's a it's a unique and important and interesting uh, trial as as it is. Uh, but but any any unique approaches to the trial that you're taking? Any particular challenges that uh, you're you're currently working to overcome in terms of the trial? Well, I think there are a couple of uh, interesting uh, approaches to this trial. Um, in the phase one trial, we're going to have two, uh, two uh, segments. The first segment, uh, we're focused on, of course, safety and looking at immune biomarkers. We want to see if we're inducing the immune system to target this protein that, uh, that we've identified. Um, and in, then, then we have a second segment of the phase phase one trial in which we uh, are going to be monitoring breast tissue of women who have had uh, prophylactic mastectomies. You may know that uh, a lot of women that have mutations in their BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes um, often will have their breasts surgically removed even before they have cancer. Very, you know, a famous example of that was Angelina Jolie a few years ago, uh, because she she was a carrier of the mutations. She chose to have uh, her breasts removed surgically uh, rather than wait until she contracted breast cancer. Because the the, um, probability of women who have those mutations of getting breast cancer and and often the most uh, aggressive form of breast cancer known as triple negative breast cancer is very high. Mm -hmm. Um, So in our phase 1B study, we will not only be looking at immune markers to determine if we are inducing the immune system to do what we want it to do, but we'll also be having uh, the breast tissue from these women that are having prophylactic mastectomies, and we'll be able to take a look at that. This is this is a type of this is a type of study that ordinarily is never done in human beings. You can do these studies in animals because you can you know, uh, remove tissue uh, easily, but in human beings, you often can't. Except in this particular situation, where these women have decided that they want their uh, uh, mastectomies even before they have breast cancer. So we're going to be seeing, looking at healthy breast tissue, and we're going to be evaluating whether our uh, vaccine is inducing changes in that breast tissue. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what, um, what give, give us a sense for what kind of volume of the vaccine you need to produce to meet the needs of this uh, phase one clinical trial. Well, phase one is a very small trial. It's 18 to 24 women. Um, and uh, so we anticipate that uh, we'll be uh, complete with the phase one uh, by uh, by the third quarter of this, this year. Um, the amount of material is relatively modest. Uh, we've got uh, uh, quite a bit of material already manufactured, uh, bottled, it's ready to go uh, at the appropriate pharmacy at the Cleveland Clinic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, who's are you manufacturing that in, internally yourselves right now at that at that level? No, we're, we're uh, we have a series of uh, contract vendors uh, that uh, are all FDA approved. Uh, 
that uh, are manufacturing, that are doing the analysis and the valid, you know, a number of other things that are necessary before those materials can be injected into human beings. But uh, but there's there's a network of uh, of outside firms that are working with us on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. You've mentioned uh, Cleveland Clinic. You guys are you guys are partnering with Cleveland Clinic and the Moffitt Center, um, and you know both both very well known names uh, in the space. Good company to be in, given the line of work you're in. Give us some color on how those partnerships came to pass. Well, I think uh, a number of uh, factors were involved uh, in in both those partnerships. Uh, uh, in the case of Cleveland Clinic, uh, I met uh, uh, one of the uh, their business people who was looking at uh, evaluating partners for the vaccine technologies. And uh, successive to that, I met the scientist, and uh, we had some discussions and. Uh, uh, you know, we both had a similar vision for uh, what we thought this, these technologies could, where these technologies could go. And so we were able to partner with them. In the case of Moffitt, that was a little bit different. Um, the technology, the CAR-T technology that we were working uh, on with Moffitt was developed at a place called the Wistar Institute, which is a uh, basic research institute in Philadelphia on, on the campus of the uh, University of Pennsylvania Medical School. And uh, we licensed the technology there. Uh, as it turns out, the inventor, the principal investigator at the Wistar Institute that developed the technology uh, was going to be head of was moving and was going to become head of immunology at the Moffitt Cancer Center. And so after we licensed the technology from Wistar, um, we kind of, you know, you know, we, we spoke with the Moffitt Cancer Center and they decided that they would like to perform the preclinical uh or I should say IND enabling, and then eventually the clinical trial at Moffitt Cancer Center. As Moffitt happens to be one of the top cell therapy facilities in the world, they've done uh, clinical trials on virtually all of the approved cell therapies, as well as many cell therapy technologies that have not been successful. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to structure a relationship, a partnership with Moffitt that enabled us to... uh, conduct a clinical trial there. And that clinical trial has not begun yet, but is on the verge of beginning. We anticipate uh, within the next couple of weeks, two or three weeks. So so both the Cleveland Clinic and Moffitt partnerships are in, in relation to the, the CAR-T candidate, not the, the uh, breast cancer vaccine? No, no. The Cleveland Clinic uh, uh, technologies are both the breast cancer and the ovarian cancer vaccines. Okay. So the Cleveland Clinic uh, uh, is focused on the vaccines, which is uh, they, they develop those vaccines and they've been uh, uh, performing research on those two technologies for the last 10 years or so. Gotcha. Uh, Moffitt Cancer Center is the CAR-T cell therapy technology. Good. Yeah. Sorry. I, I missed that. Thanks for clarifying. Um, so I want to, so I want to learn more about the, the CAR-T approach. Uh, let's, let's shift gears and talk about that. If, if you're, if you're game for a few minutes. Um, sure. Yeah. So I, I guess we'll start at the highest level. Ex- explain the rationale at Anixa around targeting solid tumors with, with CAR-T therapy. 
Well, as, as uh, a lot of people in this field know, CAR-T therapy has done some pretty amazing things for certain leukemias and lymphomas, specifically leukemias and lymphomas related to B-cell disease. B-cell is a type of white blood cell. However, CAR-T, despite many approaches to address solid tumors, has, has not worked at all in any clinical setting. Uh, we've got lots of good animal studies showing CAR-T can, can address solid tumors, but no one has been able to make it work in human beings in any effective manner. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and there are lots of theories about that. You mentioned some having to do with you know, trafficking and the tumor microenvironment and, and other things. Um, we feel that uh, there are certain nuances about this CAR-T technology that will make it uh, uh, successful in solid tumors. Uh, of course, we have to prove it. Um, um, the key issue, the key point, there are two key points here with our technology. Number one, we're targeting a protein on ovaries that is very exclusive to the ovaries. Uh, That protein only exists on the ovary cells in women and on the testes in men. So when we target our CAR-T against the ovary cells, we don't anticipate that these cells, the white blood cells or CAR-T cells are going to be uh, targeting other cells, other organ systems in the body. And then the other uh, key characteristic, which is something that was discovered uh, over the last few years, is that much of the vasculature, the blood vessels within a tumor, uh, often express this specific protein as well. So in our case, in the case of ovarian cancer, our CAR-T is going to attack the ovarian cells directly, the cancer cells, as well as healthy ovary cells. Uh, But it's also going to destroy the vasculature, disrupt the vasculature of these tumors. Um, And by doing that, we're sort of destroying the tumor from the inside and destroying the tumor from the outside. And that's a mechanism, of, those are mechanisms of action that have never been seen in RT uh, technology. And so we just want to prove that out in human beings. And if we can do that, then we'll probably have the first CAR-T that is successful in, uh, uh, in a solid tumor indication. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations, like mRNA and cell and gene therapies, into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need-to-know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at Cytiva.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com backslash Emerging Biotech. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that that addresses the the, the hope around that whole solid tumor challenge uh, that, that's vexed the, the space for so long. But there are other, other challenges to uh, CAR-T cell therapies that I'd like to kind of roll through with you and what your... Um, response to or approach to uh, these challenges will be. Um, you know, one of them is, is, is supply. It's a challenge I think that everyone's uh, facing right now in, you know, yeah. regardless of modality, uh, supply chains are, um, 
inbound that is inbound supply chains are 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 maxed out and and stressed uh what's the approach been at an exit now granted i i know that uh, you know you're pre, you're pre preclinical um you know even the 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 breast cancer vaccine is a very limited clinical supply um but you know even even for things that uh, are required for for testing and assays and and experiments at an exo what what how are you overcoming supply chain challenges yeah, you, you you bring up a good point, and uh, you know the the whole uh, pandemic and issues related to the pandemic have had uh, impact on our technology, our our progress, as well as uh, the progress of other clinical trials. Um, from a supply standpoint and a logistics standpoint, uh, we've had uh, challenges in obtaining certain types of materials. Occasionally, although we've been successful in, in gaining those materials, but it, sometimes it's taken some time. Um, in the case of uh, outside vendors, um, often what we find, what we found, is that those vendors have been impacted themselves, regarding you know regarding their supply chains as well as their labor force. Their scientists and uh, technicians uh, have had to. Um, uh, uh, because of the because of the pandemic have had to socially distance and so a number of people that ordinarily would be in a laboratory uh, has been reduced uh, they've had to work in shifts and our researchers have had to do the same thing and as a result there have been you know delays in getting things done unfortunately and uh, you know if if our technologies work um, every single day that uh, that technology was delayed from getting to the market to commercialization means there are a certain number of patients that uh, don't get the benefit. And so we're working very hard to address any supply chain issues and any other issues that will cause delays. Unfortunately, the the reality of the situation is that uh, you know the pandemic has caused these delays, and, and we just have to deal with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what about um, scalability? So again, uh, you probably haven't faced any great big giant scalability tests yet, but maybe you can even look at uh, some forward thinking thoughts around how you'll scale, uh, specifically CAR, CAR T therapies, where that's been a challenge for so many companies. Yeah, that's that's as you noted. Uh, you know, we're starting out uh, with a small number of patients, so scalability is not as big an issue as eventually it'll become. Um, uh, but uh, there are a number of manufacturing uh, organizations now that have uh, formed to help build and scale uh, cell therapy technologies. Um, And a number of the big pharma companies have developed that capability internally as well. Our business plan is to develop these technologies to a point where we can partner with one of those larger pharma companies that already has the manufacturing uh, infrastructure to be able to scale the manufacturing. At the current time, we're working with the Moffitt Cancer Center, and Moffitt has the ability to manufacture enough for the clinical trials, but eventually, uh, we hope this is going to be commercialized and it's going to be utilized for thousands and thousands of women that 
need the benefit uh, that have ovarian cancer. And in order to do that, we're going to have to work with uh, a larger pharma company that has the infrastructure to be able to scale rapidly. Mm-hmm. When you say a larger pharma company, are you are you speaking um, specifically about perhaps a, like a, a commercial kind of big pharma company? Or are you referring to like a, a contract manufacturer organization? We're uh, primary. We prefer a big pharmaceutical company, um, you know, like a Novartis or mm-hmm. or uh, Bristol Myers or someone like that. Uh, primarily because not only will they have the infrastructure to scale and manufacture, but they'll also have the infrastructure to distribute uh, uh, distribute and help commercialize the product. We've got the. Uh, relationships with the appropriate physicians and hospitals. And CAR-T therapy, as you may know, is a very complex type of therapy. It involves removing T-cells, white blood cells, specifically T-cells from individual patients, and then genetically engineering them outside the body, expanding them, and then re-injecting them back into the body. And that's a four to eight week process uh, for every individual patient. And lots of logistics are involved. You've got to ship the material from the patient to the manufacturing site where all of the engineering and quality control occurs. Then you've got to ship that material back to the hospital uh, where the patient then gets infused. So it's a very complex process. Um, and and uh, organizations like some big pharma companies have become expert at that, and we would like to partner with one of those. Yeah, yeah. What's your take? A side side question. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, just based on the the logistical challenge, you know, the the six to eight week paradigm. What, what's your take on the companies? Uh, you know, the, the the new and emerging car T companies who are pursuing an on site. Uh, approach to uh, extraction, engineering, and and reinjection. Have you? I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you've heard of like some of these companies that have, uh, you know, some pretty um, uh, aggressive intentions to create an atmosphere not unlike you know uh, same day kind of dialysis or next next day uh, CAR T cell therapy um, administration. Do you think that's realistic? Well, there are a number of ways. Uh, number of approaches that people are taking. One approach is to develop off-the-shelf CAR-Ts so that you don't have to remove an individual, you know, patient-by-patient sample and you have something off-the-shelf and you can just ship it to every hospital, wherever uh, the appropriate patient is. Uh, That has not uh, uh, led to any successes yet. Um, And the approach that, that you noted about on-site CAR-T development. You know, I think there's some aspects of that that could be valuable, but but it's a very difficult, it's a very expensive process to develop, indivi- you know, develop multiple uh, CAR-T uh, engineering capabilities at hospitals. So you really can't go to 2,000 hospitals in the United States and have the ability to build CAR-T technology, you know, build CAR-T products at every one of those hospitals. So then the question is, maybe you could do it at, you know, 200 or 20. And that that might be realistic. Uh, but I think from a 
capital expenditure standpoint, uh, the logistics and the practicality of that are very difficult. Uh, CAR-T itself is very expensive already. Uh, and then if you have to amortize the capital expense of having multiple manufacturing sites, um, as opposed to one central manufacturing site, uh, I think it, it's just going to add, add to the uh, expense. It'll improve uh, the timing. So instead of maybe six weeks, it might be you can do it in about four or five weeks. But I don't think the value of saving a, a week or so for the capital expense is, is worth it. So I'm not sure that that's the right way to go strategically. Yeah. Okay. I was just, just curious about that. I'm always interested in people's opinions on, on that because, it, as I said, it does sound like a, an ag- aggressive goal. And some folks say, you know, hey, that'll uh, it, it it'll it'll actually um, create logistical efficiencies. Where you know, I, I think in the near term, it's more a redistribution of cost than it is a, a clear cut cost cost saving. Yeah. Um, but on the logistics, uh, outbound logistics, no. And I'm I'm curious about the challenges that you. Uh, that any 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 car T manufacturer faces there and how you anticipate overcoming those. So um, you know, uh when I say outbound logistics, I mean that element of shipping and transportation of these cells to and fro, uh the, the development center where their engineering is taking place, then back to the the patient in the hospital. What are the considerations there and how does the NICSA plan to to um tackle those those challenges? Well, um, we've not had to deal with that at at the current time because right now our clinical trial is going to be a single site trial where the patients are at Moffitt, the manufacturer of their individual personalized CAR-Ts are going to be done at Moffitt. And so we don't have to worry about it. But eventually you're right. there's going to be a central manufacturing facility where patient cells are sent and they're genetically engineered and then eventually sent back to the hospital. Um, the, as you noted, the outbound logistics are critical. Obviously, you, number one, you want to ship the material in a manner that uh, you don't lose the material. You don't want to, you don't want to lose it in the mail, so to speak, uh, because there's a lot of work that's been done on that, and that's very, very precious material that's been taken out of a can. You know, this is, these are white blood cells that have been removed from a cancer patient. Um, uh, secondly, you want to make sure that the, the you know there's an appropriate cold chain, uh, meaning these cells cannot be. Um, uh, exposed to you know very harsh conditions, they have to be kept frozen. They've got to be kept uh, frozen, and they have to be monitored so that at no time does the temperature come up. Uh, and so, there are companies and technologies that have uh, formed now that just do that. They, they take the material that has been genetically engineered at the manufacturing site, and then take it to the hospital, uh, to the patient's bedside effectively, essentially, uh, in a manner that uh, maintains the viability of the cells and uh, that enables you to monitor those cells so that uh, uh, 
if something bad happens, if they come up to temperature, if they, if that, you know, if that uh, sample ha- happens to sit on the tarmac, uh, you know, at a you know very high temperature, uh, the monitoring system will tell you that. So you don't ever want to inject a patient with cells that have been damaged in some way. So this is a complex process that uh, typically has not been dealt with by the pharma industry. But over the last you know ten years or so, uh, we've learned a lot, and the infrastructure to uh, handle the outbound logistics has uh, has been built and uh, will continue to be scaled as CAR-T therapies become more and more common. Yeah, excellent. What, um, between now and uh, the the entry, the foray into the the clinic uh, for that ovarian uh, CAR-T therapy, um, what needs to take place? What 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 does Anixa what what does what does Dr. Kumar need to lead Anixa through to to be prepared here when that takes place? Well, at this point, it's mostly just uh, what I would characterize as bureaucratic uh, mm-hmm. uh, work. We had, you know, uh, I don't want to indicate that it's not important, but uh, mm-hmm. we have various committees that have to review uh, the final. Uh, protocol and plan, uh, IRB committee, uh, uh, committees and internal committees at, uh, the Moffitt Cancer Center. Um, you know, there's a number of, of, uh, things that have to be done to verify that, uh, the, you know, the clinical trial is being done properly, uh, as per the, uh, requirements of the FDA and as as per other types of uh, internal requirements at Moffitt, because essentially a clinical trial is an experiment on human beings, um, and uh, and these are sick human beings you know, that are that are going through a lot. Uh, and so before you can do that, not only do you have to make sure that the technology is is viable, but there are a number of uh, organizational, logistical, and ethical issues that have to be addressed. And so we're in the final stages of doing all of that. And uh, we anticipate, as I noted, that that will be happening in a matter of weeks. Um, and after which, after that, we'll recruit patients and, and begin the treatments. Yeah. Any special considerations as, you know, as, as the leader of the company around uh, ushering your your second candidate into an active clinical situation and what that means for the company itself, you know, uh, from a business standpoint, from an HR funding standpoint. I mean, does that, you know, it, it, on the continuum of Anixa, do you, do you recognize that as a significant point that requires any sort of, uh, you know, extra attention perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we always want to build out a portfolio of technologies uh, because we want, you know, it's sort of, you know, multiple shots on goals, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, we feel that we're working on a number of different technologies which have very, very large commercial opportunities that will have massive, massive impact uh, societally uh, if should should they work in the, in the clinical trials, um, but. Uh, as many people know, in the world of biotech, a lot of these technologies, no matter how compelling the data is in animals, preclinical data, uh, often they 
going to human beings and don't work as expected. And so typically a biotech company would like to have as many shots on goal as possible. At the current time, we have four shots on goal. Um, two of those are, you know, in, in one is in the clinical trial, the second is about to begin a clinical trial. The other two are preclinical. Uh, but uh, we're always thinking about what, what's next. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not able to discuss the details about some of the other programs that we're looking at, but, uh, but we are uh, evaluating other programs to add to our portfolio. Yeah, I wanted to ask you too about about one of those, which I think is I think it's public knowledge. If it's not, don't worry. We'll just uh, <laughs> we'll just edit this part out of the conversation. But um, you've you've got a COVID a COVID therapeutic in the in the pipeline. Is that is that something that, uh, that you're able to talk about just briefly? Since I brought COVID up earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and and COVID is a little different program than our other oncology programs. Uh, mm-hmm. We decided to go down that path because in my previous company, uh, I was the CEO of a company that was uh, working on a number of infectious diseases. Um, uh, one of which was SARS coronavirus one, uh, which you know in. in, in you know, several light years ago, um, we worked with the Department of Defense uh, and other government agencies to look at not only that particular virus, but other viruses that potentially could be utilized as biowarfare agents. Our goal was to try and avoid that. Um, and uh, and so when coronavirus two uh, appeared and uh, created this pandemic. Um, we felt that some of the approaches that were being taken were not the right approaches. Um, so, for example, uh, when when the pandemic arose, most companies looked at what they had on the shelves and tried to repurpose existing drugs to address the pandemic, you know, the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of those drugs failed. But we have now a couple of drugs. Uh, you know, remdesivir was the first. Uh, Paxlovid is uh, another uh, drug that has recently been authorized. And uh, there's a drug from Merck as well. Uh, but all three of these uh, compounds, these drugs, were repurposed from other viral diseases. What we decided is that a better approach would be what's occurred in the world of hepatitis and what's occurred in the world of HIV. Rather than repurpose existing drugs, let's try and understand in exquisite detail the structure and function of the machinery of this virus. So specifically the enzymes that make this virus work Mm -hmm. and then target drugs against those enzymes. So start from scratch and develop uh, basically compounds that address the specific enzymes of this uh, virus as opposed to trying to find something that has been tried against other viruses. And we feel that this approach is going to take a little longer, but ultimately yield a much more potent and safer uh, drug uh, therapeutic. And in fact, uh, our initial research has demonstrated that we've identified some compounds that, that are more potent in in vitro assays compared to the existing products that have already been authorized. So we believe that our 
compounds are going to be much more effective drugs, but they're still at an earlier stage of development. They're at the animal animal testing stage, right? Those are those are that's a small molecule candidate. That's correct. It's a small yeah. molecule. The vision is for something that's room temperature stable, very inexpensive to manufacture, synthesize and manufacture, and can be taken orally. So they can be distributed across the world, including the third world, which doesn't have the uh, ability to, you know, to, you know, distribute vaccines at, you know, cold chain vaccines uh, or, you know, utilize expensive therapeutics. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just speaks uh, again, speaks the the diversity and the, the, you know, the multiple shots on goal philosophy, you know, you've got a, a CAR T cell therapy and a couple of them, you've got cancer vaccines, you've got a small molecule. I mean, you guys are, uh, you're, you're definitely spreading it out. Does it take anything? Just a couple more questions for you, Dr. Kumar. I know we're running short on time, but um, what would you say it takes as the leader of this company to enable or allow or facilitate, I guess would be the word, that level of of breadth? You know, most most companies, and I don't, you never want to peg yourself as most companies, right? But But most companies, mm-hmm. They, they pick a modality or, or perhaps an indication or two, and they just kind of run down that track. Um, that, that diversity of, of, of modalities and approaches is, is kind of uncommon. How do you manage that? How do you facilitate it? Well, uh, we, we're building a company with a very unique business model. The traditional biotech company and biotech companies that I've run in the past, uh, we've had large staffs. You build very expensive laboratories with expensive equipment and you hire uh, expensive scientists and physicians to to do your research. Um, And when you do that, you have to, you know, you build a portfolio of products that are focused on one area. So for example, if we had built a very expensive infrastructure to develop uh, cell therapy, CAR-T therapies, then all of our products would have to be in Mm -hmm. CAR-T. What we decided was we were going to execute a business model where we were not going to build that infrastructure internally. We were going to access that infrastructure by working with academic partners. So that enables us to work with the Cleveland Clinic on vaccines. They've got the research team there, they've got the physicians, they've got the ability to do the clinical trial there. Uh, so we work with you know, a large number of people at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and, and by the way, these are people that ordinarily a biotech company could never even hire. These are world-class scientists at one of the top institutions in the world. Um, And a lot of these uh, scientists and physicians don't want to work in industry. They would rather work in in academia. And so these are people that uh, a biotech company, even if you were Merck, couldn't couldn't even hire. Um, And then uh, on the cell therapy side, which is very different technology than vaccines, we're able to also work in that area because we can work with another partner, in this case, Moffitt, that has the expertise and the infrastructure to do that. And then as we go forward with, you know, in the, our COVID program, we work with an international team of uh, people in Germany, in Austria, in Italy. Uh, again, we've put together uh, groups of uh, you know, people that have ex- 
appropriate expertise to help us develop that technology. And as we go forward, um, uh, if we add, if and when we add additional programs, uh, we can add those programs in any area because our business model doesn't limit us due to the fact that we have not made the massive investment in one particular scientific uh, focus. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll, we'll be looking at other, uh, other uh, programs uh, that are very, very orthogonal or uh, different from uh, the programs that we're working on right now. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I feel like I got to open up a whole new set of questions around that. I'm going to ask one of them, and then I'm going to let you off the hook. I promise this time. I know okay. I've held you for quite a while, but how does that approach affect your your um, your fundraising and financing approach? You know, obviously, you, you go out there with a very concerted. Um, if you go out there, I should say, with a very concerted approach, maybe single modality, maybe single indication, um, you may appeal to a certain set of investors, a certain set of people in the investment community who are. Um, uh, rooted in or invested in uh, that indication or or, or that modality, um, does does it take a different a different sort of uh, investment mentality to go out there and find folks who are are appreciative of the not just many shots on goal but extremely broad uh, indication and approach uh, theory that Nexus subscribes to? Yeah, I think uh, I think this is a very attractive approach because it doesn't require as much capital as a typical biotech company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we still have to spend money, but because we're not building that infrastructure and have that fixed cost, um, we're able to access that through uh, you know these partnerships that that I've noted. Uh, we're able to spend a little bit less money and work on multiple projects. Uh, ultimately, for a biotech company, especially a biotech company like ours, which is developing new and innovative technologies, the investors are going to be interested in the results. Um, they're going to want to see how the clinical trials are going. Are we seeing what we expect to see or are we not seeing what we expect to see? Statistically, are we getting the data that uh, indicates that this these products that we're developing are going to work uh, on a larger scale. And and those are the things that uh, any investor, uh, regardless of what the business model is, is going to want to see. And that's what's going to drive the uh, success of the company. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, like I said, I, I appreciate the time that you've given me, Dr. Kumar. I know we've uh, pushed it, pushed the limits here. Um, but it's been a. I, I appreciate the fact that you're willing to come on and entertain my my broad and uh, perhaps not, uh, unorganized uh, line of questioning. Uh, thank you for very much for having me. I, I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, so did I. Thanks for joining us. We'll be paying attention. It's uh, it's super great work that you guys are doing. It's very important work. Obviously, like you said, it it affects uh, at some point everyone. Um, and uh, we'll we'll continue to pay attention and hopefully have a. An opportunity to huddle up with you again when we've got some clinical good good clinical news to share. Sounds great. I look forward to it. So that's Anixa Biosciences, Dr. Amit Kumar. I'm Matt Pillar, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online, which I encourage you to visit at bioprocessonline.com and sign up for my newsletter while you're there. We do this in partnership with Cytiva, which demonstrates its commitment to biotech startups by way of its Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash 
Emerging Biotech. Please check that out. Subscribe to the pod and give us a review if you like what you're hearing. And as always, thanks for listening.